Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Arcana Uncorked. The podcast where we uncork some homebrew and discuss whether or not it is right for your game. I'm Patrick. And I'm Andrew. And you also go ahead and sit down, buckle in, if you have some bottle of Fay wine, uh, something nice and lovely, bright aromas, interesting tastes, uh, uncork it. So, because today, like we talked about last time, we're going to talk about the Fay, and specifically looking a little bit at the races uh, that make up the Feywild, and ways that you can implement that in your game, both the wizard's way and how one of the creators, one of our favorite homebrewers does it as well. Yeah, so uh, this is coming for us on the heels of the recent Unearthed Arcana post by Wizards of the Coast, which is entitled Folk of the Feywild, which includes options for putting fairies, Feywild hobgoblins, owl folk, and rabbit folk in your D&D game. Yes, this is, I think, something that a lot of people were very interested in. Uh, if you were ever interested in creating a fey character before, the closest you were going to get were the Eladrin elves, which are elves that are pretty much native to the fey wild. Now, this is the first time that Wizards is kind of breaking the mold of the elf for creatures that come from the fey, as far as actual published material. Which is very exciting. I think it gives players an opportunity to have that space that is pretty unique in a way that we'll talk about more later. Uh, it's worth noting that the way that this material came out was after the release of Chaucer's Cauldron of Everything, which as a book uh, had a pretty intensive kind of rescale of the way that, or another alternative option for creating your character that changes the way that ability scores are attributed. So the races that are in here don't have ability scores, so we're not going to talk about that as much for these. We're not going to go through all of these one by one. We just wanted to kind of highlight some of the things that came up in conversation when this first came out and it got big on the Reddits. Yeah, and again, if you want a more in-depth discussion of this, there was a pinned post. It might not be pinned by the time you see this on slash Unearthed Arcana that has uh, some good discussion. I'm sure the D&D Next subreddit also had a lovely talk about this and there are a lot of opinions on the internet that we don't need to rehash yes but let's jump into a very broad strokes look at this starting with perhaps the most divisive of them this fairy race that they uh gave us which is really uh meant to represent a pixie or a sprite or any of the very small winged races of the Feywild. yeah you all know what fairies look like, fairies, pixies, sprites. There's there's it's kind of not too much to go through here. There are really two abilities that we want to talk about with fairy um, that I think really drove a lot of the conversation around it. The first one is uh, fairy flight, which is that you have a, fa- a flying speed equal to your walking speed and can hover. This flight is magical and does not require use of your wings. Uh, keep in mind that your walking speed is 30 feet, Just faster than most small creatures tend to have their walking speed anyway. So this is pretty huge. Wizards does not implement a lot of races that have a flying speed at all, and all the ones that do, I believe, have some level restriction on when you're able to actually use it. Yeah, I believe that the Aarakocra has an armor restriction to their flight, which generally makes sense, given that Aarakocra, I think, canonically weighs something like 30 pounds, so their armor might weigh as much as they do. Yes. Yeah, flying speeds in general are an extremely uh, controversial uh, feature as a racial trait. 
because uh, a lot of DMs, especially a lot of novice DMs, have great trouble dealing with the fact that uh, your flying character, especially if they're a spellcaster, is basically immune to the kind of standard low-level pack of wolf enemies. Yeah, Flight has a way of, I mean, literally taking a fight that can be mostly two-dimensional and taking it three-dimensional. And not only does that create complexity for the DM and how do you design an encounter with an environment that is usable when characters can use any element of 3D space, but also definitely leads to some challenges and what sort of creatures that you choose, right? And all of a sudden, if you had a party full of fairies, you're right, like, I can't throw an owl bear at my party anymore because they can just all hover from far away and shoot firebolts at it and that the encounter will end. Although your owlbear might decide to climb a tree and take them down, so... Yeah, but but there are certain things that just don't even count as encounters anymore. You know, the the scary owlbear nest encounter you had is instead a dot of terrain as they're flying over the forest. Yes. And there are definitely ways to build around this, but it does sometimes stretch suspension of disbelief to believe that every single type of enemy has a ranged attack or has an urcher with them. Or, you know, uh, we, we always talk about um, how you don't want to remove your player's abilities very often because it kind of feels like what I call an ass pull. So, you know, every encounter taking place conveniently within an anti-magic field or something will start to feel very bad because it'll feel like you are taking away the reasons they chose their uh, race. Yeah, absolutely. There's a level of player autonomy that you don't really want to get into, especially once you've actually started the campaign. Ideally, you want that to be a thing. And it's not that flying speeds, again, flying speeds exist in some other races. The Aircocker have them. The Asmar can use them with a bonus action once they get access to that ability. Uh, so it's not, and the fly spell exists. You can cast upcast it to target more creatures. So it's not like Wizards ever doesn't want you to fly, and it's not like flying is bad for the game. There are plenty of flying creatures out there, but it is one of those things that, especially in the early game, when you have a creature that is able to fly when or a party member is able to fly when none of the rest of them can, um, or you can have the entire party fly when none of the encounters are balanced for it. This can be just a bit intense without any sort of restriction on it. Um, so we'll talk about what those sort of those restrictions might look like when we look at a different creator's take on it. That's just kind of something to keep in mind. Yeah, because uh, in all fairness to Wizards of the Coast, uh, they're not the only people who write flying races, and obviously UA material is always optional for your games. You decide what is allowed in your games. So, uh, as with all UA, Wizards is taking a chance giving these sort of abilities and seeing what people do with them. This is not finished content, and we shouldn't be reviewing it as such. Absolutely. So if we if we sound a bit critical, it's done with love. <laughs> yes. Uh, so the other ability that is um, a little bit wacky, perhaps, is a combination of abilities. Uh, the idea that the fairy is a size small creature. Notably, it does not give like a, a range of physical sizes in feet as it does with like previous uh, races they've released. And then this ability, Fey Passage, you can squeeze through a space as narrow as one inch wide, which is uh, a lot of the online discourse was feeling like that this was a way of making a tiny creature without saying it was a tiny creature. Yeah, 
I think I sort of agree with a lot of that discourse. <laughs> Having a creature that can squeeze through that one inch wide space, I mean, there are ways you can do that, right? Some sorts of spells, um, like a uh, spell that turns you into a cloud. Oh, gaseous form. And honestly, um, in large reduce on a halfling, that takes them from small to tiny, and you can squeeze one size smaller, so I might even allow it with clever play on a halfling rogue and some transmutation. Yeah. So it's not that players can't do this, uh, but that's, I mean, that's very small. And I think there are a lot of things that break down in the game when you go smaller than small as far as existing rules. Tiny, I think, is something that has implications beyond the fact that you're smaller than other characters. And so I can see why wizards wanted to avoid it. But it does create this weird kind of juxtaposition of you don't know how big your or how small your character is because theoretically they still still have a five by five area of their effective influence as creature small creatures do but also they can squeeze through a one inch wide space um it, yeah it is an interesting ability we we have seen this in uas before with um medium center as uh, which was another interesting choice that wizards made to try and maintain the idea that small and medium creatures are appropriate player character races and you can do this uh but just as there were homebrew responses to medium center as um there is an entire supplement that we are not going over today but we might one day that is large player races and how to balance them there has been a response well the homebrew we're looking at today was not a response to this it existed long before these races but there are ways that homebrew creators have tackled the idea of tiny races there is one more thing i want to look at at the fairy uh which is your creature type is fey your creature type is fey. Yeah, you are uh, you are not a humanoid if you play a fairy, which uh, logically, in flavor, makes absolutely perfect sense. And it sounds like, on the face of it, that it might not really, you know, okay, you're a fey. Creature types really don't do a lot for PCs, but that's only because you just assume they're humanoid 99 times out of 100. Uh, there are a lot of spells, charm person, hold person that uh, just don't work on other creature types. No, there aren't. And this is not Wizards' first stab at this. Hmm. So the the one example I can think of is uh, in Theros, uh, Odyssey of Theros. Mm-hmm. Uh, the satyr are also fey. So this is not the first time that Wizards has tried to do a fey creature. Um, in the Mythic Odyssey of Theros book, they do have a satyr, and the satyr is fey. So it's not the first time they tried to extrapolate into this, but it's worth noting there are a lot of spells that work specifically on humanoids and don't work on other types of creatures, or only work on fey, elementals, extra planar creatures, and don't work. Uh, For example, uh, if I banish uh, my player character who is a fairy, will they just disappear if I sustain that banishment? That becomes a huge issue to a player, whereas that doesn't happen when you're a humanoid. Now, again, you can make fun things out of that, where suddenly it's a quest to get back out of the Feywild, but that's immediately splitting the party, and that you may or may not want to do, depending on your uh, skill and patience as a DM. No, it, it definitely throws a wrench in things. Yeah. So uh, this is all just to, to look at this and say that there are a lot of considerations that you need to make when you're bringing fey creatures and really any creature that isn't like bipedal two-armed humanoid into your game 
because there are a lot of assumptions in the way the system works that assume that the player characters are close to the human model of anatomy. Yeah, it's at least an assumption that they're all more similar than they are different. Hmm. This is a problem that uh, Starfinder, uh, the Peugeot system that is... Uh, very, it's the sci-fi system that's based very vaguely on D&D 3.5. Uh, they run into this a lot because sci-fi settings have a lot of, a lot more things that differentiate very strongly from the humanoid baseline. Right. Uh, so they write a lot of rules to deal with uh, wacky races that people might want to play. So, we've talked about the fairy. I want to bring up one more thing in this, which is almost a non-sequitur. But we are uh, here on this UA, and I want to look at the rabbit folk really quickly, which is also a very interesting one. Yeah. It's an interesting bring-in, one, for the fact that it doesn't, not really a creature that already exists, um, but two, there is one feature in particular that I think everyone's been talking about, and that's hair trigger. Yeah, uh, hair trigger reads, you add your proficiency bonus to your initiative rolls. Short, simple, to the point, very strong. Very, very yeah, strong. Extremely. Uh, there is almost no case in which going first is bad. And if it is, it's that you want your ally, like maybe the wizard, to go before you to get their blasting spell off. But you don't want the enemy to go before you. Yeah. And worst case, even in that situation, maybe you don't get the most optimal play, but you can still hold your action and use that to do whatever you're planning on comboing off of. So it's not like you lose that out but being able especially being able to move and reposition yourself before an enemy creature gets to go is it's very strong ability and i think when we talk about that in the context of this change that came out of tasha's where your ability scores can pretty much come from any existing race and you can reassign them how you want to be you have a lot of flexibility in what race you choose if you want to have the right stat balance for your class which is nice in being able to kind of build out your own character and make it not feel like you're so bound up in this existing race structure, which I think is generally good for the player base. But when it comes to power gaming and you know, optimizing your character to be the best they can be, these ribbon abilities that aren't related to your aren't related to your ability scores only become a lot more important. And this is among the strongest that exist out there. Hmm. Yeah, um, I can definitely see people will take the rabbit folk somewhat regardless of the sort of uh, story that they're trying to create for this ability. We're very fortunate in our campaigns. We don't have to deal with this particularly, um, but I have had to deal with it in campaigns with previous groups where people will kind of game the system to gain literally the best things they can. Um, and this is always going to become a bigger issue the more content, whether official or homebrew, you add to your game. The more bloated a game gets, uh, the more options there are, the more options that will have interactions that you may, may be aware of, maybe not, but may not desire to see in your game. Yeah. It's worth noting, D&D is not a game that is necessarily built for power gamers. I think a lot of the design choices they've made, especially in 5th edition, as they've kind of grown out these roleplay options and built out the storylines to be a little less combat-focused. You know, power gaming is not, by any means, the core design philosophy that drives the way that Wizards builds out their classes and races. But 
it's still worth keeping in mind that those players exist and they play the game, and that's a perfectly valid way of playing the game if that's really how you want to play it. But I think being able to preserve the spirit of having feeling like you have a choice when you want a power game uh, and not just feeling like, well, this is a really good option and I should take this because it's great. Um, it, it does limit the ability of what the dungeon master can do as far as the actual context of their storyline. Yeah, that's one thing that it seems right now, and uh, this is not my own thought, I saw this on a Reddit debate, is that Wizards is taking the kind of the tact of, well, CR is a guideline, and DMs can really throw whatever they want at their players. So exactly how powerful the players are really isn't a huge concern, because you can just adjust the challenge for your home game. Which I totally agree with, is an awesome thing, and that's the great power that DMs have. Uh, But the concern here is more that your PC, you as somebody who is playing very much for the storyline and chose maybe slightly um, suboptimal mathematical options, will be disappointed or feel entirely outclassed by people who are really going for hitting the monster with the big numbers. Yes, and I think this is something that exists even outside of these really stronger official content things we've been seeing, both sort of from Folk and then also from Tasha's. I think we're seeing this stronger content come out as published by Wizards. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, and the way that these things are built together are really nice. I, If nothing else, I think a takeaway from this conversation is when you want to bring homebrew in for your characters, really fail out the table. See if this is something that people will use because they're interested in a flavor. Is this something people want to use because it's really powerful and strong? And if it is because it's really powerful and strong, is that something like that's shared in the table? And everybody's willing to make those sacrifices? Or is this something where one or two players are going to become obscenely strong and the rest of the players are going to feel kind of impotent during combat? Yeah, we don't we don't want to discourage or uh, feel like we're taking the piss out of power gaming. Because it is a entirely legitimate way to play the game. And as a person who played a lot of AD&D, um, where the Dungeon Master was much more of an antagonist figure than a guide figure... It is totally a way that D&D was meant to be played at one point in its development. Uh, You've just got to communicate with your table and make sure that everybody's on board with the style of game you're playing. All right. With all that context in mind, I think we can go ahead and switch over to our actual homebrew that we're uncorking today. Yeah. So what we're going to be talking about today, based on that, is Old Gus's Fae Folk. Uh, So Old Gus, uh, you can refer to to them... uh, more generally, I think their name is uh, Parterio Flynn. They are a pretty prolific homebrew creator. They have basically a large compendium of things called Old Gus's Errata, a lot of which focuses on additional races or monsters to add to the game, which our table has used pretty extensively. Uh, we're a big fan of a lot of the things that are created in there. Uh, shout out in particular to the Quiqui, which is a small owl bear player option and has led to some really funny stuff. Um, but they create a lot of really cool and interesting things, and they have an entire compendium here speci- uh, specifically looking at fey races, um, both individual options as well as broader advice on how to approach having fey inside your campaign. Yeah, and we really like this for a couple reasons. Obviously, these are excellent, really well-balanced racial options. Uh, they, they've got, you know, uh, Boggles and Draklings and those kind of like Volos, Mordekainen's, uh Fey races that Wizards has published as player races. And also um, some ones that are maybe from other uh, 
folklore, maybe of their own design, I honestly could not tell you. And additionally, it's really clear that Old Gus has taken the time to think about the impact of fairies in a campaign. The last uh, five, six pages of this compendium is talking all about uh, both mechanic and flavor things for a DM to deal with, but also give compelling storylines to fairy characters, which is really nice. With all that in mind, we're going to dive right in. Um, we're going to be focused today on talking about the Pixie. We don't do this because the Pixie is necessarily our favorite or even the best of them in here. I think, in fact, it's the most interesting design challenge that Gus works at to talk mm. through this. And we, uh, for the reasons that we discussed when we were going through the Unearthed Arcana. But it gives us a, kind of an interesting analog to look at the way that wizards approach this question of the tiny fae creature and then the way that old Gus is approaching it. Yeah, exactly. These three things, their flight speed, their tiny size, and their fey creature type are all tackled in really interesting ways here. And uh, we'll just really quick go through the pixie racial traits, and then we'll compare and contrast the UA and how these uh, issues were dealt with. Yeah, so we'll jump in. First, you have some descriptions of their appearance and age, which follow along with kind of standard things there, but obviously you can kind of fit that to your own campaign. Um, ability score and your charisma score increases by two. Charisma is a pretty popular choice amongst Fey. The Eladrin, I think, gets benefit to their charisma as their sub-race pick. It's also worth noting that within this errata, in his class errata, he has a fairy race that he encourages fairy players to take to develop their Fey abilities more, and it is a charisma caster. So this makes perfect sense for a way you could play, like... A fairy who's really specking into their fairiness. The size is pixies are 4 to 10 inches tall, have a wingspan of 6 to 15 inches, and weigh 2 to 6 pounds. Your size is tiny. So immediately there, one, defining the size in actual measurements, which is not kind of mm-hmm. omitted in the fairy class, or in the fairy race, and then going straight for the your size is tiny. Uh, the, like the actual mechanics of which don't get described here, they are, I think, added in the discussion kind of at the end of the appendix. Uh, it does have a small note that pixies use weapon and armor with the same restrictions that apply to small races. Although I think the idea is that actual tiny weapons and armor, while Gus says they work the same and do the same damage, are slightly more difficult to find and may cost slightly more. Yes, you will have to find a very small tailor to make you your very small leather armor. <laughs> the next up is speed. Have a base walking speed of 15 feet and a flying speed of 25 feet. If you are wearing medium or heavy armor or exhausted, you cannot fly. So this is the immediate consequence of you are a tiny creature who can fly. One, your base walking speed is slower because you're a small creature. I think that makes a lot of sense. It kind of continues a trajectory that goes from medium to small down to tiny. And you still have a pretty fast flying speed, but you can't use it if you have medium armor, heavy armor, or exhausted. Yeah, and this is a more um, traditional limitation on flight as opposed to the UA. This is very similar to the Aarakocris limitations on flight, although I think Exhausted is a new uh, but very sensible addition to the limitations. Yes. Obviously, this you know, creates some some blocks on what types of characters you might want to build. For example, your plate-wearing paladin pixie is going to be a little less effective than you might hope, uh, but that's kind of a choice that I think it, it makes sense for the extent of not letting a vengeance paladin pixie fly at you at 25 feet per round and smash you into the ground with their smites so i 
I think it makes sense. It it follows along with physics and with the philosophy that wizards already put in place for the Arakakra. So a couple of real quick abilities. They get direct vision. They can speak common and sylvan. They have fey cunning, which is very similar to the gnome ability. They have advantage on wisdom and charisma saving throws against magic. They cannot be put to sleep by magic. However, they are vulnerable to thunder damage. Vulnerabilities are definitely not very common uh, in races that are established. In general, I think, with the exception of some of the races that are posted in Volos, Wizards doesn't often bake weaknesses into certain classes, but this is definitely one that, like, uh, Thunder Damage is not a super common damage type, so it's not going to really screw over your character, uh, but it does create distinct weakness that goes along with the fact that they're tiny, I think. Hmm. Uh, they get flight light while flying. You emit dim light in a five-foot radius and emit a soft noise while flying on the material plane. You have disadvantage on dexterity stealth checks. Uh, this is, again, an attempt to limit the sort of uh, shenanigans you can pull with being a flying creature. And I think it is uh, sensible and definitely it allows the character to try whatever they want with their flight while giving a reasonable, are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> yeah, I would be curious what this looked like, how a DM would want to rule a pixie that casts invisibility on themselves and then goes flying, because theoretically that advantage on stealth checks from being invisible would counteract the disadvantage, but invisibility doesn't stop the effects of certain magical, other doesn't stop other magical effects that you have going on, so you could very well be emitting dim light while being invisible. I would definitely uh, have to think about how I would handle this, although I might have a lot of fun as a player uh, casting invisibility on myself and then pretending to be a will-of-the-wisp or something. Oh yeah, there's some interesting ways you can go about it. A lighting is the next feature you can light on a creature of small or larger size, so anything that is bigger than you. By moving into their space and using 5 feet additional movement, if the creature is an ally, you can use them as cover. While lighted, if the creature moves, you move with them, and you can release your grip as a reaction creature aware that you have lighted on them can remove you using an object interaction or making an opposed grapple check essentially uh so this is sort of interesting uh, it gives you the opportunity to hide behind a bigger creature in a way that is distinct from the kind of basic cover rules so you actually get the ability to get cover without having to take the hide action having to, to use movement to duck behind something i think it's fairly interesting it's uh the the like additional movement piece i think can create a little bit of shenanigans with how much movement they get but they're already a creature that has less than average movement even when they're flying so it's not a deal breaker mm -hmm. and obviously existing in the same space as someone is uh slightly dangerous at points as you will have to deal with even the smallest area effect catching both of you indeed Feywild access, you know the location of all portals to the Feywild within 100 feet of you at all times, and can access them at will. When you reach 5th level, you gain access to the divination spell to discover the location of the nearest Feywild portal within 7 miles. You must finish Lara's in order to cast a spell from the street. This is a spell that is maybe really useful if you are a, running a campaign where the Feywild is somewhere you want to go frequently, or maybe is pretty much completely useless if you like if your character doesn't want to go home to the Feywild or isn't there. So it's nice ribbon. It's ultimately not really a power creep unless you are in a situation where having access to a Feywild portal is very useful to the party. Yeah, uh, there, there are um, circumstances in which I would be careful about this ability simply because extraplanar travel isn't a theme in some campaigns. 
uh, especially if you're going slightly lower magic, although you have a fairy in the party, so you've crossed that bridge already. Right. Uh, but uh, fifth fifth level to locate like actual faraway portals means that it's very unlikely that unless they start with knowledge of some portals to the Feywild, that they're even going to encounter any until fifth level. So you have a little bit of a gate on that. Absolutely. Uh, naive, you do not gain the benefits of a background instead of choosing one skill and one artisan's tool or musical instrument of your choice. This is, I think, kind of interesting and... I want to say nice. It's a little bit... It's recognizing the fact that Fey are going to have a different upbringing than your average player. I think denying them a background is a weird thing that kind of breaks the basic rules of how players expect to like go through the formula of character creation. But it's not the end of the world. It just gets a little more flexibility, maybe, than some of the other options do. I mean, obviously, um, backgrounds are something that uh, we've informally for ages, and Tasha's has pretty much confirmed uh, things that you can mix and match the skills and uh, tool and language benefits freely. So this is essentially saying that instead of a background, you get half of a background, one skill and one tool. Yes. Uh, And lastly, the last feature that is for the whole class is that your creature type is fey. Which, as we talked about before, and matches up with what Wizards is doing with their fairy race, uh, it makes sense, given the fact you're from the Feywild. Um, but has those same clinical complications that we will talk a little bit more about at the end. I do want to note here, this is the entirely the same treatment that Wizards gave to their fairy race. Um, there are races in this supplement that have something called the Fey Hybrid Rule, in which they count as both Fey and humanoids. We're not going to go over any of these races in the same detail we're going over the Pixie, but I think it's a very interesting way of still allowing these low-level humanoid effects at them. If anything, I would consider it a negative to their uh, racial traits kind of balance, because it means that you are vulnerable to protection from good and evil and banishment and hold person and germ person. <laughs> Yes, really the way that creature types are designed, both for monsters and then also for players, since you can be more than one, is that having more than one type really only serves to make you weaker, unless you happen to have a really strong combination of things. Um, but it really, new things generally make you more vulnerable, than more frequently than they make you less vulnerable. Yeah, unless you're finding a lot of like very specific use magic items for creature types or something. So there are three sub-race options here. Um, won't go into too much detail. There's kind of the Seelie, the Unseelie, and the Wild. Each of the three gets a plus one to an additional ability score. Uh, dexterity for the Seelie, Wisdom for the Unseelie, Constitution for the Wild. They each get another skill proficiency. Uh, so Persuasion for the Seelie, Intimidation for the Unseelie, and Animal Handling for the Wild. Yeah. Although I gotta say, it feels bad for the Wild Pixie because, uh, I, I don't know, what. Let me know if in your games animal handling comes up a ton and is a really useful skill, but I personally consider it one of the least useful skills because it so often is conflated with nature and survival that it doesn't, it, other than taming animals, it very rarely has its own niche. Yes, it feels very much like a sub-piece of another skill more than it feels like its own independent thing but maybe you have experience and feel free to talk to us about what you're doing that may make the animal handling skill more interesting yeah because if you can if you can do that i'd love to incorporate it in my own games yes 
The third ability is everybody gets a spell, or they get two spells. You get a cantrip when you first take the race, and then you take a get another first level spell when you... It's actually a second level spell, it looks like. What, or oh, yeah, a first it... level spell that's been upcasted, depending. That's right. Oh, look at it's, that. Yeah, so it's, it's basing itself on the tiefling system, basically. Yes. Yeah, which is nice. It gives you extra more spells. That's similar, I think, to the one of the abilities that they actually gave the fairy in the Unearthed Arcana version of it. Mm. Uh, so you get spellcasting, which is great. I think it's very innate to the pixie, and I think it included in you know, the spell, the monster manual block for pixie includes spellcasting, so it, it's very natural to put that in here as an innate spellcasting feature. And the last one is you get a language. Uh, so Elvish, if you're Seelie, Infernal, if you're Unseelie, which is very metal in a way that sort of doesn't match up with the existing like lore of the planes for what Unseelie is, but it's still really cool. It's one of those things that it's like, oh, well, that tells a story right off that I don't know if I was telling. Yes. Uh, and then Wild Pixie gets Druidic, which is interesting because it, it says reads, speak, read, and write. I'm pretty sure Druidic is mostly only written because it's used as kind of like a navigation language in the wilds but you know depending on your campaign having it being spoken and read is still i've definitely seen it used as like latin um where it has a right language to it as well right r-i-t of course um (laughs) and so yeah that's the pixie it is a lot more um positives and negatives than your standard race which you would expect both having being a fairy and being tiny and trying to make the uh, kind of the design space for uh, free flight at level one. Because as you'll recall, the Arakakra basically gets that and a natural weapon. Right. Um, and that's literally it. So th- there is a lot, there are a lot of features here. Uh, there's a lot to deal with. It does really kind of change your play style. Yeah, it's, I talk a little bit about the balance uh it's worth noting that balancing races is a little bit easier than say balancing classes or subclasses because of the way that things are introduced and in particular um if you're interested in kind of putting two different races slash other races back to back and seeing which one's stronger um, there's this feature called detect balance uh, if you just put it in google you should be able to spit it out um, but it's a really good way of just quantifying how strong races are based on kind of a point system the way that it's built out and that takes into consideration things like skill proficiencies weapon proficiencies um, different changes to your movement and so there's actually some interesting ways you can look at that comparison a little more objectively than just apples to apples each feature hmm. i think in general this is it's a hard thing to do for the pixie because there are so many features that are different than other things that exist my inclination would be say that it's slightly more powerful than expected in the right situation and then you know depending on the type of character you're going to build could also be pretty much useless right like paladin pixie eh, yeah that's the uh that's the thing about this is that um wizards of the coast and D try to make it in 5e such that uh any character that you build is going to be a baseline of functional it's why they did away with negative racial modifiers is they wanted you know even the silliest racial combination from previous editions uh your sort of elven great weapon master 
sort of thing, is still going to be a character that can, like, work, because they want you to be able to experiment with those weird options instead of always doing the half-orc barbarian. And this does move away from that a little bit. The types of abilities it has really do tend towards certain play styles. I would say, obviously, any charisma caster and probably rogues would be really nice here. So let's go ahead and talk a little bit, I guess, because it both has a conclusion and to touch on kind of the appendix that Old Gus has here, whether or not the pixie would be right for your campaign. And and more generally, even our fairies right for your campaign. <laughs> yeah, the, the fae in general. And so I think the, the first thing we've talked a lot about is that the fae wild is a setting and you can kind of reflavor that setting to be a different type of plane. You know, you don't have to go with what's in a dungeon master's guide for a description of the fae wild, but... Fae are pretty distinct in the fact they're supposed to be otherworldly. They are not, they're common racers. They are generally not from the same dimension that the rest of your party may be from. Uh, So your campaign setting, at a minimum, needs to have some pretty interesting dialogue back and forth between the material plane and wherever these are from. Um, This is Mm -hmm. something that Old Gus calls a mythic setting is one option of this. Or you could just have a low magic setting where... The fairy is managed to get across, but it's really dangerous because there isn't a lot of interaction between the mythic, between the Feywild and the Material Plane. But there has to be some sort of relationship that needs to be well thought out so that way your character doesn't feel either alien or ostracized in some other way. Yeah, um, and that's going to be on the subject of Fey being kind of these alien creatures. Um, And it may depend on, uh, this again depends on your setting and your game, Um, but a lot of times Fae are perceived as these kind of fun-loving, don't-care-about-anything pranksters. Uh, Sometimes they're really mysterious and sort of direct, the sort of thing that you wouldn't want to, like, actually have anywhere near you when you don't go in the woods at night. Um, But in any case... They often have really, really strange moral compasses that may be even off your standard uh, 3x3 alignment chart. Uh, Their goals are completely beyond the understanding of mortals, Um, and that can make for really interesting but also really problematic PCs. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, that just needs to be a consideration, right? It, you can have a campaign that I think is really interesting. I would love to run a, like a Feywild campaign where everything's like that, but it, it does take away from the basic tool set that a dungeon master often comes to the table with for getting their players to come do a quest with, like, this is a bad thing and you're good characters, so you have some natural inclination to want to solve it. That just doesn't exist for fairies, so you have to think of other ways to motivate them, and that's a conversation to have at the table with your character Either your one character, if you have a fey amidst the rest of the humanoids, or if you have a fey campaign and everybody needs to kind of rethink how their alignment makes sense. So, in this appendix also, um, Old Gus is very kind to basically tell us everything we just talked about, about common concerns with fairies, uh, creature type, flight, their spell casting, use of tiny weapons and armor... Um, he gives a lot of great advice here that I'm not going to say verbatim, because please go and read this compendium. It's really worth your time. Yeah, absolutely. And this is like one of the nicest things that I think a homebrew writer can do. Um, a lot of like, the sign of 
what I found to be really good homebrew is when you have things like design notes included at the end, things that address common concerns and questions. Obviously, you have a right to pose those questions even if they're not addressed, but being a, being able to head off some of the most common questions around why your race or subclass has a design that it does is really helpful to the reader so that they can say, okay, well, at least I know this was thought out and considered, and I know maybe some ways that the author would approach balancing around them. There's an entire section here on flight and combat and the ways that you can work around challenging your players who have flight, but not immediately, like, nerfing them to the ground. And uh, finally here, and this is very interesting because this is sort of, there are some sort of optional mechanics here for belief and glamour and fae vulnerabilities, like the idea that Faye get drunk off Malik. Uh, that just really have some excellent ideas for ways you can make your fairy, both creatures, uh, NPCs and PCs, really truly different. Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's one of those things that you don't have to do it as a DM. These rules are always optional. Um, but the more, especially when you have a campaign where the Faye is so interesting, the more that you can do things that make your character feel unique and special can be really cool as long as you're doing that with the entire party in mind and trying your best. So would definitely recommend reading through all that flavor stuff because the, the little pieces of flavor often are what really enriches making an interesting character choice. Absolutely, absolutely. And again, that is our whole point with Homebrew is how many more interesting character choices, at least on the player side of Homebrew, can we make? And this supplement, and all of Old Gus's Rata, which, uh, this is our episode on the Fae Folk compendium, but there is a lot more to go through here that we will be getting to. Yes. Um, we'll link both the entire errata, if you're interested in that, and specifically what the Fae Folk document is, uh, in whatever, wherever you're finding this podcast, so you can take a look yourself, and also mm-hmm. feel free to reach out and look for it yourself, uh, on, and then on Reddit, like we said, uh, the, um... Partario Flynn is the author's name. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah, I think uh, his uh, I think his tag is you slash call me Partario. Um, I'll put his name in the uh, description as well. And he is uh, really. I have been told that this guy is really receptive to comments and questions about his work. Um, yes. So go and give him all your love, because this is there is so much material here. Absolutely. And if you feel inspired, write your own fairy. Share it with us. We'd love to see what you come up with and how you might tweak the things that both wizards and uh, old Gus have come up with. Mm. Oh, well, that's going to do it for us this week. Uh, What have we got on the docket next week, Pat? So we'll be taking a look at a tweaked class. Uh, So sometimes someone doesn't like a class and decides they want to take a whack at changing it in an interesting way. It's been done very heavily for a few classes such as the ranger but this time we'll be taking a look at the sorcerer and we'll talk about why the sorcerer may have needed a tweak and the tweaks that someone has gotten to make around it bien stay tuned well i've been andrew and i'm patrick and uh this has been arcana uncorked we'll see you next week goodbye